Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall. Our articles are free. Our podcasts are free. Our videos are free. And we want to keep it that way so that our ideas can reach as wide an audience as possible. And it's only thanks to those of you who donate that we are able to do this, that we are able to have a packed website that is accessible to everyone. If you haven't yet donated and you'd like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are great and always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Giving as little as £5 a month can really make a huge difference and help Spite carry on doing what we're doing. So if you'd like to donate, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Right, on with the show. All women should enjoy the rights and the freedoms that we have in Western society. So what we did was ignore those women. Those immigrant women, they are the the victims of child marriage, forced marriage, female genital mutilation. A Muslim woman who is immigrant and the children of immigrants is not going to report a rape because she will be told it's your fault. We knew all of this. We covered up. That was taboo. So we let down those women. And now, because of the scale of the number of immigrant men who are engaging in this misconduct, the problem is boiling over to the public space and it's affecting all women. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Ian Hersey Ali. Ian is an author, activist and former politician. She has carved out an international reputation as a critic of Islam and a defender of women's rights. She argues and campaigns for the right to autonomy for Muslim women, and she has campaigned against forced marriage, honour crimes and female genital mutilation. Ayan was born in Somalia and moved to the Netherlands, where she was elected to the House of Representatives for the People's Party for Freedom and Democracy. In 2004, she worked with Theo van Gogh on a short film called Submission, which explored the repression of women under Islamic law. Van Gogh was murdered by an Islamic terrorist shortly after the film was released. Ayan has written numerous books, including Infidel, her autobiography, Nomad, From Islam to America, A Personal Journey Through the Clash of Civilizations, and Heretic, Why Islam Needs a Reformation Now. Ayan's new book is called Prey, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. Ayan continues to speak around the world on the problems of religious extremism and the importance of women's self-determination. Ian, I want to start off by asking you about your new book, which is called Pray, Immigration, Islam and the Erosion of Women's Rights. 
And a key theme in your book is the way in which there has been a shift in the understanding of and appreciation of women's rights in some Western countries where there has been a large influx of male immigration from Muslim majority countries. So you give the example of France, Germany, the UK and Sweden, where there are some areas in which we don't often see women or where women have a different experience and where there has been a general impact as a consequence of this kind of immigration on the standing of women's rights. I wonder if you could just explain to our listeners how pronounced do you think that problem is and do you think it's getting worse? Well, thank you so very much. First of all, you've summarized it in a fantastic way. Uh, that's exactly what I'm trying to say in the book, that there is this shift where we took it for granted in some of these European countries that women were safe in the public space. And now that's not the case. And some of these women, are they're coping, they're adapting to the new environment. And this uh, unsafety in the public space by avoiding certain streets, certain neighborhoods, by strategizing before they leave their homes, how they are going to be safe. This is exactly what women in some of these Muslim-majority countries do. Mm. They make decisions about, you know, will I be safe when I go out? I'm going to take someone with me. We'll only go out in the daylight. We will only walk on certain streets and so on. And so, yeah, there is this shift where you think the integration of, say, norms, people's values, are now in Europe adapting and that's the irony of it all. We've been having lots and lots of debates about integration and assimilation in these countries, assimilating the, the minorities, but now we are seeing mm. something different. We are actually assimilating into and adopting the norms of the countries and societies that some of these men come from. And Brendan, I also want to really emphasize, it's not all men, mm -hmm. it's not all Muslim men, mm -hmm who display this kind of disrespect and misconduct towards women. I, I really want to make that as clear as possible. Sometimes, uh, because I've seen some news sources that try and exaggerate the problem. I think the problem is bad enough. There's no need to exaggerate it. There is no need to condemn all Muslim men. There's also a need to see that some of the misconduct displayed and described in the book is also done by men who are not Muslims. Yes. I really just wanted to get that out. Absolutely. I think that's an incredibly important point. And in fact, I have a couple of questions later on about precisely that issue and the exploitation of this problem by certain political actors who do not have the best intentions at heart. So I want to ask you about precisely that issue. But just on the question of women's rights and the interplay between the arrival of new kinds of immigrants and the respect for women's rights, I wanted to ask you how that manifests itself. So you talk there about women feeling uncomfortable on certain streets and having to find their way around certain areas and perhaps avoid certain areas. But of course, one key difference between Muslim majority countries and countries like the UK and Sweden and France is that in, in those Western countries, women by law have equal rights. So they have the rights of legal protection. They have the rights to equality to men and in the workplace and in the social sphere. So how does the erosion of women's rights that you talk about as a consequence of cultural shifts that have taken place, how does it manifest itself primarily, do you think? 
It's very important to note that in these European countries and other liberal Western societies, the laws are in favor of protecting women. The laws view men and women equally. I lived in the Netherlands. There really is, when it's, come, when it's just in the legal space, men and women are seen absolutely as equal individuals. Now, some of these countries have accepted large numbers of men from countries where women by law and in terms of norms and values are not viewed as equal human beings. They're seen mm. as subordinate, they're seen as inferior, they're seen as sex objects. Uh, I describe in the book the viewpoint that there are virtuous, modest women and immodest women. And if you have that binary vision of women in general, it doesn't matter that you then enter a country that sees things differently. So some of the men just continue to behave in the ways that they behaved back home. You see a woman who is uncovered, who is walking out by herself or jogging at a park or pushing a pram, and you have a viewpoint that that woman is immodest. You think of her as a slut and you attack her, right? That's the kind of thing that we haven't, you know, I would say Europe evolved away from that viewpoint mm. of dividing women into the good and the bad. And in the public space, we do have a lot of domestic violence in European countries perpetrated by intimate partners. But the public space for a number of decades, at least since the 1960s, was viewed by women in general as a safe space to be. I describe in the book when I first came to Holland and I saw women dressing as they please, jumping on their bicycles, taking the bus, taking the train, and they did this at all hours of day or night, and they took their safety for granted. Now, there were obviously issues of, let's say, serial rapists and things like that, but that was so sensational. That was the sort of thing that dominated the news for days and days and days. It, it's not what I'm describing. What I'm describing in the book is completely different. Yeah. And it is just the sheer number of groups of young men on the sidewalks, for instance, or at the train station or in the parks, all of this. And then just they start from catcalling and making lewd and obscene remarks to touching and groping to much worse. And all of these things that I'm seeing are by law and, and you know, the norms and values, it's, it's all unacceptable. But then in practice, it takes place. Mm. And, so, and these women are now adapting and coping in ways that I think it really is about the erosion of the rights of women. We're going backwards. I wanted to ask you about where you think the key dynamic for this problem comes from, because this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time, whether the key dynamic is the act of mass immigration itself, including from Muslim-majority countries, or whether it is something else you write about at great length, the moral and political cowardice in Western countries themselves, which are mm -hmm. increasingly reluctant to emphasize the importance of assimilation, to emphasize the superiority, one might say, of enlightened Western values, certainly over the sexism that is promoted by some Muslim men from some countries. So how mm -hmm. do you see the dynamic playing itself out? Because I guess one thing that someone might say to you is that 
even though there has been a large scale immigration in recent years, these are still relatively small numbers of people in terms of the national sense. They don't wield an extraordinary amount of power. So do you think the problem is primarily one of the men's behavior or of society's failure to insist upon the importance of women's rights in the face of this kind of religious pressure? It is both. It is obviously the big picture is, yes, there is immigration, immigration from Muslim majority countries. The majority of those immigrants that influx in 2015, majority of the people who arrived were young men. Is, is that surprising? No, it's not. They're obviously so much stronger and more capable of making that long journey and very arduous journey from their home countries to Europe. Um, the push factors, uh, the reasons for men from the Middle East, from Africa, from South Asia to leave their home countries and seek a better life somewhere else, that's all incredibly understandable. And I don't think there's anyone who's arguing that immigration is not an issue. I think everybody now, you know, in the earlier years, it was all oh, immigration is, it's only good and it only has good consequences and good outcomes for the host societies and for the immigrants. But I think that attitude is now shifting in some of the European countries. Then we had and still do have these long-winded debates about assimilation. Mm -hmm. And when I lived in Holland, I've seen it again. It hasn't gone away. These postmodernist ideas would be applied where they would say, well, all cultures and all religions are exactly the same, just as good or just as bad. And there is no point in demanding that the immigrants and their children assimilate into the societies that they have chosen to come to and live in and that have hosted them so generously. Some people will say, well, okay, economic assimilation. In other words, that people have jobs, but not in terms of their values. They can keep their religion. They can keep their customs and norms. And then, But then here's a dilemma. When you get a confrontation of values and a clash of values like we're seeing now, the treatment of women, what should then the host societies do? Mm. Yes, they do pass these laws. <laughs> They've switched laws. You know, now harassment, for instance, is outlawed. But then these laws are not enforced or they're not properly enforced. I haven't seen in any country, I think the only country that probably came close enough is Austria. But these countries have not yet put laws in place and enforced things in such a way that these young men feel deterred. As long as that's the case, I think they will not only display contempt for women, but they're going to display contempt for the values of our society. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I think in relation to the insufficient enforcement of laws, there is also a broader problem which you talk about in the book too, which is how difficult it can be even to raise these issues and raise these questions. And you freely admit from the very beginning of the book that it is unfashionable in the age of identity politics to raise concerns about the behaviours or the traditions of certain minority communities. And you talk about how that is a particular problem in relation to discussions about Islam and Muslims at the moment because of where they are presumed to fit on the matrix of victimhood. So they are presumed to be a victimized community, a community that that is punched down upon, a community that is oppressed, and therefore raising these questions is seen essentially as verboten. This is not something you're allowed to do. How problematic do you think that culture of censure is when it comes to tackling this problem? Do you think it inflames the problem by restraining society from being able to talk about it honestly? Yes, absolutely. And in a number of ways. First of all, women and their rights are sacrificed at the altar of identity politics and immigration and political correctness. So basically we're saying we can go back to Victorian times and beyond or look like the countries that these men are coming from And if things are bad for women, then, you know, tough luck. Mm. I even see this in the United States when it comes to, for instance, lifting up transgender communities as a group. And there are unintended consequences for women. But when it comes to the identity politics, logic is, well, that's tough. (laughs) So rationally, you would say you can have a win-win situation where you welcome asylum seekers and refugees and economic immigrants from countries where it's really life is terrible and people are poor and they're punched down upon and they're oppressed and they're persecuted. You know, open, fling the doors open for Syrian refugees, okay? But do you then have to sacrifice the rights of women for that? Can we not have that win-win rational discussion where you can openly acknowledge that because the individuals who are coming in actually coming away from violence. And they do have, yes, religious values and norms and laws that suppress women and suppress women's rights. It's actually not that strange for them to display that kind of behavior in Europe. Once they come to Europe, it would be a great thing for us to have an open debate so that we can then socialize the young men into accepting the norms and values that protect women's rights, but that could also lift them up from their poverty and backwardness. Why can't we have that open discussion? Yes, I think the open discussion issue has has got to be front and centre in relation to this, because of course, if we can't openly discuss something, then the possibility of tackling it as a problem just shrinks more and more. Let me please give you a concrete example. When I lived in the Netherlands, we used to have these so-called lonely planet trips where you take a backpack and then you choose a country that you want to go and explore. And as women leaving the Netherlands, we would not only read about the places to go that are beautiful and that are wonderful to explore, but we would also read about the culture. 
we would read about, you know, it's not a great idea for you to go to this place on your own because this is the sort of bad thing that could happen to you in Turkey, in Morocco, in, you know, whichever country you choose to go and explore. So the fact that things are different in those countries was always well known. Yeah. It's so puzzling to me. Then if you go to Afghanistan and you want to exploit or Pakistan or Bangladesh or any name any country in Africa, and you read the manual that tells you cover up and avoid these places and these people or, or behave differently. Why are you then surprised when those men come in that just because they crossed the border or just mm. because you gave them an identity card, that their models are going to switch and replicate exactly the ones that you have at home? Why do we assume that? Absolutely. And in relation to the reluctance to confront this question or to or even to allow free discussion of it in an honest way you talk about the the role that identity politics and the matrix of victimhood plays in these discussions but then you you describe very well in your book how this is a, an especially pronounced problem when it comes to issues in relation to islam and in relation to muslim immigration where the tactic of silencing or the reluctance to have an honest discussion is is very clear and i wanted to ask you about the role that you think the islamophobia industry or at least the islamophobia idea plays in relation to this where i am in the uk the the notion of islamophobia is incredibly widespread i'm sure it is in other european countries too the notion that mm not only is anti-Muslim bigotry wrong, and I think every normal person agrees that there is such a thing right. as anti-Muslim bigotry and that it is a poisonous ideology, but also that any criticism of mass immigration or any criticism of behaviours and problems in certain Muslim communities or any criticism yeah. of the kinds of things that you have been writing about for a long time, that that too is necessarily Islamophobic and, and bigoted. And how, how much of a problem do you think that idea has mm -hmm. been to discussing this? So there are two forces that benefit from the Islamophobia meme. And one force is the Islamist force, the groups that want to spread the ideology that the political idea, the, uh, you know, political Islam. Mm -hmm. We call it radical Islam, we call it Islamism, we've all sorts of names for that. But those groups benefit. And when they're confronted with the problem that I describe in the book, where women are attacked on the streets, <laughs> the remedy they propose is, well, the women shouldn't be on the streets mm -hmm. then. They should cover up and they should then behave according to the norms of the Islamist ideology. And that, you know, then they're modest women, they wouldn't be attacked. Mm -hmm. So it's these radical Islamists who invented the notion of Islamophobia mm. because they saw the presence of the identity politics philosophy and they're exploiting that. And we make it very easy for them to exploit that. You will have reports of bigotry against Muslims and everyone will condemn it, mm. right? When you attack a Muslim woman because she's wearing a headscarf or uh, you attack a Muslim male because he has a beard, Everybody will say that is wrong. It's absolutely any form of bigotry and discrimination is just wrong. Mm -hmm. Then there's that other force, the extreme right-wing populist parties that also benefit from the Islamophobia meme because when 
people in the middle, center left, center right, decide, we're just not going to have this conversation. There's this big price on it. There's the taboo. If you bring it up, Brendan, obviously you'll be dismissed as a racist and xenophobic. And so normal people in the middle, normal political parties, well-established political parties are saying, let's just not talk about this because it's not great. I don't, nobody wants to be called a racist. But then the populist parties, the extreme right-wing parties, are the only ones having the conversation. So what do voters do? Voters will turn to them. They will turn to the ad hoc, newly established populist parties, some of them more racist than others. But it doesn't matter. They are having the conversation. They are talking about it. And I have seen people move away from voters, move away from voting for, say, the social democrats all their lives to suddenly moving to Geert Wilders party in the Netherlands. And you're seeing this everywhere. You know, France was scared, terrified a few years ago that um, Marie Le Pen was going to become president, but it's only Marie Le Pen who's talking about the issue. Mm. Now Macron, the president of France has moved towards accepting that there is indeed a problem and that it's homegrown and that he has to do something about it if he wants to get reelected. So I think there's been a shift, and it's a good one to have these conversations, but it's always one step forward, two steps back. In the United Kingdom, we had this whole terrible, terrible debate about the grooming guys. Mm. First, we refused to have it. We refused to protect these young women. We allowed the exploitation and the rapes and the gang rapes to get out of control. And then finally, we acknowledged it. And then Sajid Javid, when he was Home Secretary, he asked for a report. And it took them forever to release that report. Mm -hmm. And now the report is out. And what does the report say? Well, actually, this isn't the problem that these Pakistani gangs were doing. Everybody does. It's kind of a universal problem. All men. But do you see in the, we moved forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. And now we are back to the political correctness. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You have to have a conversation about these were men of Pakistani origin living in the United Kingdom, exploiting young, wise, poor girls. That's the conversation we need to have. Why are they doing it? How can we stop it? And that actually segues into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is a, a very striking part of your book, which is your view that these attitudes among certain immigrant communities don't only impact on the women who live in those immigrant communities, Muslim women mm -hmm. in this case, which would be bad enough. Muslim women in the West should enjoy all the freedoms and choices of every other woman yeah. in the West, of course. But you argue that it impacts on women within the broader community that these men live yeah. in. And, and what's very interesting, you make the point that one of the reasons you think that it hasn't blown up, even though it's impacting upon, uh, I guess, you know, women who were born in France, women who were born in the UK, you make the case that it's because these are very often low income communities, and there is less concern or less willingness to talk about the problems that the women in low yeah. income communities face. C could you just say a little bit about that? So there's this phenomenon called white flight. And that is if your neighborhood, the demographics of your neighborhood change, you get more immigrants, you can't cope with the culture, the norms, the values, the customs, the practices that they bring, the neighborhood becomes tense and in some cases unsafe. People with means, with the money to go somewhere else, would do that. Some people move away from cities to suburbs. They sometimes move from suburbs into the countryside, but they can afford to do that. 
And over time, what we saw, and that's the reason why it was called white flight, was the natives, people who were born in and you know raised in those countries, the whites would just sort of quietly move away, and suddenly the neighborhood would be completely, you know, immigrant, except for the individuals and the families who can't afford to move up. And yes, I make the point in the book that the Me Too movement was was good because it shone a light on sexual misconduct perpetrated by men against women. But these are middle class and upper class women. And now when it comes to the low income groups and families, uh-uh, it's still taboo. You go back to that intersectionality mm. conversation you just presented, which is, well, you know, immigrant men are punched down on and they're persecuted. And so talking about the plight of low-income women in low-income neighborhoods, you know what? We just don't want to stigmatize these men. Yeah, We feel sorry for the men or more sorry for the men than we feel sorry for the women yeah. or that we want to uphold these moral values. I want to add one point because when you started this question, you said that all women, even immigrant women, should enjoy the rights and the freedoms that we have in Western society. So what we did was ignore those women. Those immigrant women, they're the, the victims of child marriage, forced marriage, female genital mutilation. A Muslim woman who is immigrant and the children of immigrants is not going to report a rape or a sexual assault because she will be told it's your fault. We knew all of this. We covered up. That was mm. taboo. It took me a long time to start the conversation about honor killings. Here in the United States, I'm still told, nah, it's not an honor killing. It's just domestic violence. We know it's a specific type of domestic violence, but we don't want to talk about that. So we let down those women. We're still letting them down. And now, because of the scale of the number of immigrant men who are engaging in this misconduct, the problem is boiling over. It's spilling over to the public space and it's affecting all women. Mm. I describe some cases in the book where, you know, you have an 11 year old, but you also have like a woman in her 80s who is attacked. It's all women. It doesn't matter whether they wear the veil or wear a bikini. It doesn't matter if it's a swimming pool or if it's a park. It doesn't matter whether she's jogging or she's in a nursing home. We are seeing women exposed to violence and different forms of violence, and we're doing nothing about it or very little about it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
I wanted to ask you about which women we take seriously, because it's interesting that you mentioned the success of the Me Too movement, which was a huge movement in certain cultural circles and political circles for a long time. You also mentioned the grooming gang crisis in the UK, where we had a number of instances in places like Manchester and Telford and Mm -hmm. other parts of the country where largely Pakistani heritage men were abusing and raping mostly white working class girls. And what was incredibly striking during the Me Too moment, there was an instance where a very middle class journalist in the UK made headline news. I mean, the front pages of the newspapers, all the evening news slots, because a politician had put his hand on her knee. He had touched her in in an uninvited way, which obviously politicians and no men should do that. (laughs) But it was extraordinary that this dominated the news coverage at precisely the time when there was another grooming gang scandal, which people were incredibly reluctant to talk about. So it strikes me that in this mix, there is an important question of class. So as you say, (laughs) firstly, we neglected immigrant women, women in immigrant communities, even where we knew there were problems, we didn't talk about them. When the problems spread to white working class women and girls, we still weren't very keen to talk about them. So do you think there's an element here where the well-connected cultural elites or the media elites or or those sections Mm -hmm. of society are just turning a blind eye to problems that are affecting women lower down the ladder? I hoped that the Me Too would spread. Actually, the book you hold in your hand now was just going to be an essay Mm. because I thought, you know, look at this. This is amazing. All these women who have been quiet all these years, they're now coming out and they're coming out in full force. Women like Oprah Winfrey and Meryl Streep and, you know, these huge celebrities were taking the lead in condemning that kind of, you know, sexual misconduct by men and the men were getting punished. So the message was being sent, you can't do this. This behavior is unacceptable. We're not going to stand for it. But then, unfortunately, the whole thing became politicized and it's turned the wrong way and it got arrested. It never trickled down to working class women, immigrant women, honor killings. And I thought, well, here we are now. This is going to be our Maybe let's call it the fourth wave or something. That didn't happen. Why did it not happen? I think I'll have to go back to identity politics again and say if the perpetrator is white and male and heterosexual, middle class or above, it is going to dominate the headlines for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. It is sensational. He has to be punished and so on. If the perpetrator is dark-skinned, immigrant or not, doesn't matter, and himself of low income, journalists will do everything they can to avoid discussing that issue because it is seen as punching down. Yeah, Politicians will do everything they can to avoid the question because obviously politicians, the only thing they think about, I'm not saying all politicians, but many politicians, the only thing they think about is being reelected. And so what's in it for them? And I think there has to be a reason for politicians to respond and for journalists to respond and for academics to respond. And I know working class women, immigrant women are vulnerable, but if only they could unite, I think we could make the case that you have to shut up about this identity politics. 
all this nonsense to cover up because it's covering up really mm. and come out in full. I hope that the book contributes to that, that the immigrant women and the working class women, white women, that they join hands and come out as a force together against this. Yes. And Brandon, if men like you can help, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> we'll, we'll do everything we can. And I, I hope very much your book does that too. I think that's an incredibly important message. I wanted to, because it's, it's always good to make clear where we stand on these, in these kinds of discussions. And I wanted to come back to a point you made earlier, a very important point, I think, which you also draw out in the book from the very beginning. This is not all Muslim immigrants. This is not all Muslim men. And I think th this is such an important point because one of the things that concerns me, and you, you write about this very well, is that a key reason to talk about these problems, a key reason to bring them out into the open air is precisely to remove them from the taboo zone, as you describe it. And, and the problem with them being in the taboo zone, i.e. things we're not allowed to talk about, is mm -hmm. that other forces will talk about them, sometimes not in a very decent or honest way, and that can be the far right. So, for example, the grooming gang scandal in the UK, it was so obvious mm. to me that the less willing politicians and the media were to talk about this problem, the more willing far right elements were to hold it up as proof that Muslims are evil, as proof that immigration is always wrong, as proof that brown people are suspect. I mean, a, a racist agenda was attached quite clearly yeah. to the issue of grooming yeah. gang scandal. So could you just say a bit about how important it is for those of us who are anti-racist and who are who, who believe in a progressive approach to these problems, how important it is for us to be honest and open about these kinds of issues. Yeah, I mean, it, it is exactly as you say, it empowers taboos and censorship and self-censorship and the cover-up of the criminal acts of some Muslim men, not mm -hmm. all, the criminal acts of some brown and black men, that cover-up obviously empowers the far right. Uh, and it empowers them because they're the only ones in town talking about it. And so you're sending voters and victims and vulnerable women in their direction, right? But it's also the Islamists. That's the other group, the force that is preaching in these mosques about the difference between being a decent woman and a modest woman and, uh, and the other lot, the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> and so you just end up empowering these fringe forces, these extreme forces, these forces that are driven by ideological absolutism, whether it is racist or whether it is Islamist or whatever flavor of extremism is out there. And you leave the vulnerable people, the women. So in this case, the book is about women. You could write an exactly same kind of book about uh, homosexuals or about Jewish minorities in European countries that no longer feel safe. Mm in their home countries and are fleeing to Israel or coming here to the U.S. The taboos empower those who are truly, truly evil. And so if there was one way that I could encourage progressives and liberals and center-right conservatives to come out, it would be, please, let's have these conversations. We're not going to resolve these issues overnight. It's going to take a long, long time. But we can start the project of socializing, of civilizing these young men. And it's going to, in the end, it's going to be good for them too. These young men are now in prison. I've talked to some of the 
people in government, in politics, in Europe, and they say, but what? They throw their hands up in the air and they say, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about it? Okay, I acknowledge that there is a problem. They go into prison as rapists. They come out as terrorists. And that's because we want having these conversations, mm. because we want socializing them in the right way. You also talked about how Muslim men are not all evil. And that's something we really have to emphasize. In fact, I talked to a number of Muslim men whose interviews I record in the book, who, like me, are just desperate. They're saying, Hamid Samid in Germany, Mustafa Panshiri, these guys are all saying, let's have that conversation, mm. please. We know it happens. They acknowledge it. They want to talk about it. They want to fix it. They don't want to be seen as rapists and terrorists. So you're doing no one a favor by putting a taboo on some of these important social issues uh, that we're facing. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. I wanted just to dig down a little bit into the political correctness problem because I think one of the problems with political correctness in relation to the issues we're talking about, it has mm -hmm. an incredibly infantilizing impact on Muslim community. So I'm thinking about in, in the British example, which I know more about, after every Islamist terrorist attack in recent years, there has been an instant instinct amongst the, the chattering classes, I guess, to silence any discussion. So after mm. the Manchester Arena bombing or the Westminster Bridge attack, after all of these attacks, which were very, very serious attacks, you know, the emphasis is don't look back in anger, don't dwell on it too much, don't talk about these problems. And partially that's driven by a desire to protect Muslim communities from mm -hmm. difficult debate or what is presumed to be the Islamophobic tendencies of the mass of the population. And we saw a similar thing in France at the end of last year with the beheading in public of Samuel Paty, the school teacher whose only crime was to teach his class about the importance of freedom of speech. That was followed by the slaughter of Christians in a church in Nice. And the thing that shocked me, firstly, the crimes themselves shocked me, but then the inability of 
politicians or journalists in the United Kingdom, you know, 26 miles from France, the, the closest neighbour, the mm-hmm. inability of, of people to say anything significant about that or to condemn these atrocities against people whose only crime was to believe in freedom of speech or to be a Christian. So I think that political correctness leads to a situation where we can't even condemn obvious barbarism, but at the same time, we do a grave disservice to the majority of law-abiding, decent Muslim people in our countries because we depict them as victims who must be protected from discussion. Yeah, infantilizing is the word you used. Yeah, it is to infantilize, exactly. It's also to infantilize the young men themselves Mm. who are committing these acts. It is, I think, political correctness and the people who practice it. It's a cover-up for incompetence. They don't know what to do, so they say, let's not talk about it. And they won't allow others who want to explore solutions to talk about it, because that covers up their incompetence. Over time now, I think I've been engaged in this debate at least since 9-11-2001, which is about nearly 20 years. And over this period of time, I have become very, very good friends with Muslim men and Muslim women from different parts of the world. We exchange stories. We're always, I know you're not supposed to be surprised, but always surprised at how similar our stories are. Different countries, different circumstances, different families, different languages, but we tell similar stories about the treatment of women, the treatment of gays, our anti-Semitism or anti-Jewism. We exchange these stories. We were raised with contempt for Christianity. We were raised with contempt for people who are non-Muslim. We, we, we talk, we talk about it. We want you to mm. talk about mm. it too. But then because we don't have the levers of power to make changes, we are forced out of the conversation. So look at all the immigrant individuals who actually want to open up these conversations. They're the first ones to be ostracized by the liberals and the progressives and the center-right conservatives. Or, or, you know, you'll be given a platform, but you they've called me, do you know what a bounty is? Mm. I, I've been described as a white supremacist, mm-hmm. which is just a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> I've been called all sorts of, I, I used to be called an infidel. That's why I mm. gave that title to, to my book. It was like, okay, now I'm going to wear that as a badge of honor. Yeah, And so... If, if you wanted to apply the logic of intersectionality, you'd say, here are the men and women from these immigrant communities who are actually willing and able to tell you what's going on, but then they are the ones who are punched down on. And so then, then we get exhausted and we say, in that case, you know, I've told you about what's going on in Muslim homes and what's happening to some of the women and how their rights are being denied. I've written about it. I've spoken about it. I've given hundreds of interviews about this. I have a foundation. Now I'm just exhausted. I'm tired. I'm going to go and talk about something else. Yeah. That's what's going to happen to a number, I think. And I've talked to a lot of people who are exhausted, who have had enough, who say, okay, no, nobody wants to hear me. Why? I can't change anything. So things go from being bad to worse. I think that's that's a very important point about the impact that the cruelty of political correctness can have. Because as you say, it's very often the critics of political correctness or the critics of the infantilization of Muslims who are most punched down upon. They are the ones who are referred to as 
in your case, a white supremacist, which is just hilarious, or as uh, an Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom, um, <laughs> or you know, <laughs> internalized internalized Islamophobia, you know, self hatred, all these kinds of insults are thrown at these people simply because they want to have an honest discussion and. Just on that point, I wanted to ask you about, you refer to the matrix of victimhood and how that warps our ability to have mm-hmm. a discussion about cultural conflicts, community conflicts, and so on. And uh, you mentioned their anti-Semitism as well. And, and I've been thinking about the way in which notions of white privilege or, or the desire to locate every person on a, a list from most oppressed to most privileged, it strikes me that that is having a very toxic impact on our ability to have these kinds of discussions. So in the European context, for example, Jews are still targeted by radical Islamists, sometimes in a very violent fashion. They're also targeted by the far right, who maintain um, a poisonous anti-Semitic ideology. But I think they're also victims of the new identitarian politics, which always suggests that Jews are the most privileged, which translates into being the most problematic, whereas Mm -hmm. Muslims and others (laughs) might be seen as the most oppressed and therefore the most virtuous. So this racial categorization, which is done in politically correct language, strikes me as one of the key sources of, of some of the problems that we're talking about. Yeah. And again, I want to emphasize political correctness is incompetence dressed up as virtue. And the more you virtue signal, the more you are saying you really don't get these issues and there's nothing you can do and there's nothing you want to do and you want to shut other people up. I've become friends with Helen Pluckrose, who is British, mm-hmm. and her colleague, James Lindsay, and, and then another colleague, Peter Bogosian. And they actually really lay bare the nihilism in this identity politics matrix, these so-called justice theories, that there is no justice in there. And if you dig deep into them, these things are actually really racist. Mm -hmm. They're trying to divide our society into these categories of the privileged and the oppressed, the powerful and the victims and all of that, but they're doing it along racial lines. And then when you look at the remedies that they propose, it's going back to segregation, right? So it it really is truly racist, uh, aside from being incompetent. Yeah. And there is a scam quality to it. We have in this country a woman who goes by the name of Robin D'Angelo. Mm-hmm. And she's very well, I think, just illustrates she's against capitalism, thinks that every white person is racist with no exception. And so she then applies this logic where, Brandon, you are racist. You say, no, I'm not. And then she says, the fact that you object Mm -hmm. makes the point that you are displaying your white fragility. And then what flows out of that equation is that she is going to teach you how to be anti-racist, make you conscious of what you are not conscious of, but then you pay her. Yeah. <laughs> it's a scam. There's a scam. It's just really, it's like, and people are cashing in on this. Yeah. But why are they doing it? Because we now have a population. It's a minority, but it's large enough. It's middle class. They have money. They're white. Most of them are women. And they've come to believe this nonsense. 
Yes. They want to be cured and healed. They will go and sit in gatherings and talk about their white privilege and their fragility and then have yoga and then go and drink a glass of champagne. <laughs> but they are not going to discuss the real issues. The women who are actually raped, who are intimidated, mm. who are too frightened to get out of their houses. You know, the real issues that we have with immigration, with assimilation, with real inequality. That's not going to happen. It is so much easier to sit in some session and engage in a navel-gazing exercise with fellow white, middle-class, privileged people. Yeah, absolutely. But if you self-condemn, yeah, you self-condemn and that's all. It's, it's incompetent. That's, it's just all incompetence. Absolutely. Those people are saying they don't know what to do. That's a very important point. And I, I had the dubious pleasure of being on the same TV show on the BBC as Robin D'Angelo when she launched her book in the UK, her book White Fragility. And she did exactly as you described. I pushed back against the idea that I was racist and all white people are racist. And that, of course, was proof of my inner white fragility. My final question for you, I like to end on a positive note, it's not always possible. But my final question for you is that I think that there are probably more people out there than we realize who are concerned about identity politics yeah. and political correctness and wokeness and the new forms of censorship. And they're concerned about these things, not because they want to go back to the bad old days of racism and and saying whatever you want, but for the opposite reason, mm. because they think that this new yeah. identity politics is actually re-racializing society, re-segregating mm -hmm. society, dividing people in new ways, abandoning immigrant women and, and never talking about the plight that they face. So we're driven in large part by a desire to recover the values of racial equality and sexual equality and to restate their importance in the 21st century. So your book, I think, will make a great contribution to that discussion. But I wondered, what do you think are the key things we can do to propel these kinds of arguments? So again, with you, I'm also, I'm optimistic. I do like ending <laughs> positive notes because when you're lying awake at night thinking about these problems and thinking in circles, it makes no sense to just focus on the negative. I think at some point we think of, well, how can we get ourselves out of this situation? And here are a number of things that I'm positive about. In liberal societies, it's incredibly difficult to shut down free speech. We're seeing it here in America. You know, Donald Trump is thrown off Twitter and other people are thrown off Twitter some company called Parler, I'd never heard of them, is giving these people accounts. That's the competition with Twitter. So freedom, free markets. I'm confident that Parler is going to come back and come back big mm. and just benefit from this amazing free publicity. Publishing houses that are turning books down, editorial newsrooms that are letting people like Barry Wise mm. and Jim Bennett go, you know, that's, it's just crazy. You know, when I look at the positive side of things, I think if we're a free market society, we have the freedom of speech. We also have the internet. There are some people who look at the internet and they think it's only evil, which is obviously wrong because you and I wouldn't be having this conversation if the internet was only evil. But because of that worldwide web, I think we will have these conversations. We're having them anyway. Mm -hmm. And a taboo is not going to be lasting. And people are going to be Again, as the problem becomes, and this is the tragic thing though, the problems get worse. And as they get worse, these conversations are forced into the open. Yeah.
And then, and here's the positive note, is now that they're in the open, you're going to see alliances. Like I talked about vulnerable women who are immigrant and Muslim allying with vulnerable women who are white and working class. When we see alliances like that, I think that is when, and this is what free societies have to give, that's when we really can bring these problems into the open and start doing something about it, start socializing our boys differently, start standing up to the extreme right and racism, stand up to the Islamists who are poisoning the minds of our young men and turning them into terrorists, forcing politicians to make choices that otherwise they weren't willing to make. So I'm, I'm optimistic in the long run. The only thing that really saddens me is that, you know, how, how many people do we have to sacrifice to get mm. there? How big does the suffering have to be when we know all of these things now? I am. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.